everyone. This is Genealogy Adventures. My name is Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. How are you guys doing today? All right, we hope that you're having a blessed Sunday. Thank you, as always, for sharing part of your Sunday with us. We Most hope, definitely. And Most we, definitely. we sincerely and genuinely hope that everyone is kind of well and, and safe and where you need to be. Taking care of what you need to take care of, washing up, cleaning your hands, washing the walls every now and then. I'm OCD, so, yeah, I'm going to tell you to wash <laughs> the walls. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really a good thing to do. <laughs> And we're definitely practicing our social distance at the moment. As you can see, I'm not close to my cousin, as close as I normally would be. So. And without further ado, I just want to double check that we still have Maya on the line. I'm still here. Okay, well, I'm just getting ready to introduce you. We are so pleased to have Maya Miller in the house. She's an independent nonfiction writer, editor, and audio producer and the founder of Race Women, an archive research project honoring our earliest black feminist foremothers. For five years, Maya has been the senior book editor and animation producer at Story Corps, the national or, uh, oral history organization. And we'll be, we'll be posting links to all of this throughout the show. If you're not familiar with Story Corps, amazing, amazing project capturing American history and people's actual stories. Yes. So while with Story Corp, she edited three anthologies and produced nearly 20 animated shorts, for which her team has earned two Emmy Award nominations, as well as a Peabody, which is nothing to sneeze at, and DuPont Columbia Awards. She spent several years as an archive researcher at the Johnson Publishing Company, which is home to Ebony and Jet Magazines. And she's worked at the African-American oral history project, The History Makers. She received a master's degree in journalism from New York University with a concentration in cultural reporting and criticism. And without further ado, welcome, Maya. We really, really are looking forward to having this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And Donnie, did you want to do a little overview about what we're going to be talking about today? Well, today we're going to talk, I'm going to tell you how we found, we, so, okay, this is how we found Maya. We found Maya because Brian and I were thinking about shows for Women History Month because we wanted, even though this show normally focuses on genealogy and researching and things of that nature, but the past two months, both February and March, we wanted to make sure that those were the least talked about people in the world. So we want to talk about them. <laughs> Y'all know how we are. And... um and I want to make the point, it's no disrespect to the usual kind of, um, the more famous black American names that usually get featured during Black History Month and perhaps right. Women's but History it, Month. Right, it's, but it's about, and, and okay, you, okay. So it's still, it's still <laughs> acknowledging what they contributed, but what we were really, really interested in it's is... the other folks. The other folks. And that's just how, you know, y'all know me, y'all know how I am, so I'm... I'm I, I appreciate what my wonderful cousin just said, but we already know about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Har Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth. We already know about people like Ida B. Wells and and um, Harriet Beecher. You know, we just we already know there are so many other people out here that have done so much other stuff and Brian and I were trying to figure out what we could do and he came up with I wonder how many women black journalists there were. So we started Googling <laughs> and Maya's article popped up and it's awesome. And she talks about six totally different women that a lot of people may not even know about. And then the race woman thing was also something that popped up, but we were really wanting to focus on that. But like I said to you earlier, we, we probably will ask questions on the, on the race women thing as well. But yeah, so I want everybody to know this is something new and you're getting ready to learn some stuff. So get your paper. Don't just get your tea. Get your paper. Get your pencil. You're in school. You're in school today. This is class is now in session. So. And I just wanted to say that Maya has done a wonderful profile on a woman that I found out about at the Library of Congress. Part of that um, 18th century, 19th century kind of African-American um, catalog that I was telling you about. So it's a woman called Victoria Earl Matthews, and I'm sure we'll be speaking about her at some point in the show. Her family story is just incredible. Wow. Wow. So I can't wait, Maya. I'm, I'm so happy and excited that you accepted our post. You know, you, you, you saw our post on Instagram. I'm just, I'm just excited. So is there anything yeah. little, you know, what, I guess we can just jump right into mm -hmm. this. 
What started you on this journey? Well, I, you know, so, so race women and, um, this article are all kind of, uh, from the same source, which is that, uh, the, the article came out of, um, my work with this race women project and, I started Race Women a few years ago um, when, and I kind of happened upon it accidentally in that I was working on a research project about um, a a collection of uh, statistical charts, hand-drawn statistical charts that uh, W.E.B. Du Bois had and his students at Atlantic Univer- Atlanta University had created for the 1900 Paris Exposition, and so which was uh, this uh, World's Fair in Paris, and the focus of the the charts was to show the the progress of uh, Black America in the 30 odd years since slavery had ended, and so when I was researching these charts, I started kind of digging deeper into you know, what just black folks were doing and what how we were thinking and uh, the kinds of, um, you know, work we were doing at, at that time to kind of better inform, you know, the what, what was going on during the time these charts were created. And when I started, what I started finding were women, black women everywhere but not talked about, kind of on the margins, but not talked about in the same way that, uh, and, and given the same shine as the W.E.B. Du Boises and Booker T. Washingtons and Frederick Douglasses, who we associate typically with this, with this era. Um, and, you know, I started reading about them in newspapers and started reading their writings and, and reading their speeches and the more I read about them and the, and the more I, more of them I discovered, the angrier I got. Mm. I, was, I was furious because I could not believe that I had spent so many years of my life not knowing about them. Mm. And so, and that kind of anger propelled me to like just dig deeper and and what it it forced me to to really kind of think about what else I didn't know, who else I didn't know, who else was kind of hidden from me all of these years, and then you know how can I not only learn about these women these this entire generation of of women who were who were fighting and thinking and agitating uh, during the 19th century and early 20th, 20th century. Um, how can I learn about them? Can I share, share what I've learned? And that's how Race Women was created, that, which is a, um, a site that I launched on Instagram um, that just celebrates our unsung early black feminist foremothers. Um, and then a, a few months kind of into the site being launched, I was contacted by someone, an editor at the New York Review of Books about writing an article about some of these women. And I, I had just done a post on Josephine Turpin Washington, who is a journalist, um, out of Virginia, and who started had started writing um, in newspapers when she was a teenager, as early as 1880, and uh, was a huge proponent of of you know, higher education for women um, and women's suffrage. And so I was already kind of in that zone. And so, and I started learning about other women journalists who were working during that time. And so that was kind of the, the, the main impetus for then the, the article that came out of that, the heroines of the black American, America's black press. 
which is a very long answer to your question. <laughs> no, okay. thank you. There's, there's, there's a lot of moving parts to it. And one of the things that I wanted to kind of delve into, and I th I'm going to read a little bit from your article called The, Her um, the Heroines of America's Black Press, because I thought you did a really excellent job in terms of introducing who these women were. And I'd just like to take a little time to explore that a little bit. So you, in, sure. so in your words, you were saying they were a mix of wives and mothers and widows and women who never married at all. They were civic workers and religious leaders and educators, and many of them were active club women. Um, so there's a real diversity, um, even amongst their life experiences and where they came from and what they wanted to achieve and, and, and what they wanted to do. How did these women find each other? Because what I really loved in the article is you really developed this kind of feeling that there was a real sisterhood amongst them. Yeah, she mm -hmm. did. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of like that, too. And I'm going to tell you why after you answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that you picked up on that because I, I, I think there was the real... Um, they were part of a network. And I think that even if uh, a lot of them knew each other personally, um, but even if they didn't know each other directly, they knew each other's work. They were familiar with each other's work because the black press was publishing their articles. They were publishing their work. And so they were reading the work of their sisters through just through the press. Um, but, but also, you know, a little bit later, you know, so a lot, I think a lot of, most of the women that I wrote about, all six of them started working, pu publishing in the 18, I, I know William Fox started publishing in the late 1870s, but the, the rest of them in, in the 80s, starting in the 80s. And so then a little bit after that, in the 1890s, the women's club movement really starts picking up. And the, the, the club movement started in, in white, for white women too, but especially black women across the U.S. started forming clubs around the country where they were, you know, advocating for um, temperance and, uh, and women's suffrage, but they were also these, these organizational sites for activism. And so a lot of these women knew each other through club women work. They would, they would connect at meetings later. They would have national conferences. So they got to know each other that way too. And then a couple of the women that I um, featured in the article, um, Lucy Wilmot Smith and Mary Virginia Cook Parish, they worked together. They were both professors at um, State University in Kentucky and were also involved, really involved in the Baptist, National Baptist Convention. So they were homies. Um, they, were, they were friends who also advocated for each other. Lillian Fox wrote for the, in, in, uh, the Indiana Freeman um, and wrote about a lot of these women. Uh, Lucy Wilmot Smith wrote about Victoria Earl Matthews. So, you know, they were all writing about each other or knowing each other directly or working together or admiring each other's work. Because, and I think partly, uh, you know, obviously because they admired uh, what they were doing, but I think that there was also a sense of fighting against invisibility and knowing that they could have a bigger voice if they work together, if they could amplify it together, if it wasn't just one woman in one town at one paper doing something, but if they could all kind of lift each other up, it would make it harder to be ignored. Well, I actually have a question. You, you've led beautifully into my next question, um, which is, <laughs> do you think there was that sense of camaraderie and sisterhood and support? Because that's what specifically those, because again, this was a mix of women. Some came from families who were, were free people of color. Some had come out of slavery. 
But that was because the mechanism that enabled black people to survive in this country anyway. Anyway, or that's right. Or was there an added element because they, they were actively excluded from the overall women's kind of enfranchisement, equal equality movement? Yeah, so I, I, th I missed the first part of the question. You cut out a little bit. Can oh, sorry. So, um, do you think part of the reason behind their camaraderie and their, their sisterhood and their support came out of the overall black experience of America, that that's what enabled us as a people, whether we were enslaved or free, to kind of do what we needed to do? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a, a huge factor knowing, you know, solidarity work, organizational work has always kind of been part of um, black people's strategy for survival and for activism. And I think these women were very much aware of that. I mean, and that is not to say that even in working together, there were not differences. Um, but I think that they understood um, just that they needed each other to amplify their work and their messages. Okay, so kind of a case of it didn't really matter if your family had been enslaved or free, you were working towards a common goal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, these women were around the same time periods of, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, well, as it was moving forward, this was the Harlem Renaissance and things of that nature, right? So, before. well, before it, but my, my yeah. point is, because it was before it, it was the precursor of it, is what I meant to say. Mm -hmm. and, and that precursor of the Harlem Renaissance era didn't just happen in New York. It happened everywhere. So when, when she place that camaraderie with those women in the, in there the way she did i could see that in doing the research in our families for churches for example um our black families were, were they knew all of the pastors you know mm -hmm. especially those that were founders of churches aretha franklin's father preached at my grandfather's church why? Mm. Because they knew him. So it, that's yeah. what it was. Aretha Franklin sung at Springfield Baptist Church on 6th Street in Northwest D.C. So these are the things. This It was this kind of stuff that we had to do, like you said, in order for us to move forward. Because nobody else was going to help us. We had to help mm. ourselves. And I feel like, you know, these are the kind of stories that need to be said today. So we as Americans as a whole can know that we can't move forward without each other, period. You know, and I, I really liked how I saw that in that article. Mm, it, it was awesome. Cause I'm, cause yeah. leading into another question, thinking about the time period, you know, we're talking about really early period of reconstruction, kind of into reconstruction, right. beginning of Jim Crow. Jim Crow, right. One, mm -hmm. well, they couldn't express themselves politically because no no women had the right to vote, period. You can't tell them that because these, these women, especially Miss Fox, she mm. was not playing. Miss no. <laughs> <laughs> so Fox wasn't playing. They were excluded from politics. They were active in the church. They were active in the community. And of course, teaching was always a profession. I'm just wondering in your research, was there anything about writing in and of itself that really they thought, oh, that's the way that I can, that's the voice that I can have. Is there any, is there yeah. any kind of anecdotal evidence that kind of, uh, kind of talks us through why they chose journalism? Well, yeah, I mean, I think a couple of them uh, explicitly talk about the power of the press. Mm -hmm. um, Catherine David Chapman Tillman, who was um, a poet and wrote wrote fiction and plays, and all on top of her essays, um, she has, and I think this quote about how um, you know I I regard the press as one of the mightiest factors that moved this universe of ours, so great is its influence, so powerful its results. 
I very verily believe that if we, through any un unseen force, should lose our free press, our republic would be shattered. Mm. So I think that, and and, and also, um, Mary Virginia Cook Parish talks about how really encouraged black women, particularly to to enter into journalism because it was a way. It's a point of connection. It was a way to to reach the people they wanted to reach most, to empower them. Um, and so there was this idea that writing was this really powerful voice, really, a really powerful platform to disseminate these messages and ideas and ideals that they cared about and wanted to em kind of empower other women to, to take up. So the one other question is, journalism is a very male-dominated. Mm -hmm. Even then, well, it's more even so then. then, but even today, it's a very male-dominated, testosterone-driven industry. Mm -hmm. How were they perceived and what kind of resistance did they have? I mean, how were they viewed, period? And then I guess how were they viewed, how much support did they get from men? Yeah, so that's, it's interesting because um, I think that you, you are absolutely right. They, uh, it was male-dominated then and it is male-dominated now. Um, Gloria Wade Gales, who's a um, scholar, uh, uh, specifically uh, uh, black women, American women's history, writes about how a lot of the male journalists, black male journalists, did support black women in, in getting into the field. Um, and you see kind of evidence of this just, the, just because they were they were there, they were working at these papers, they were getting bylines. Um, there are a few books that came out, uh, like were clustered together right at the end, um, at the beginning of the 1890s, that I actually got a lot of my, at least my like jumping off point research from. Mm -hmm. um, Irving Garland Penn's Afro-American Afro Press and its editors which came out in 1891 and has a chapter uh, on black women journalists featuring 20 of them. Now, granted, they get one chapter out of a whole book, <laughs> but they are there. Um, and then Monroe Majors came out with a book called Noted Negro Women, Their Triumphs and Activities in 1893. And Lawson Scruggs came out with a book called Women of Distinction, also in 1893, rather. Um, and so, and the, those two books were entirely devoted to, to black women writers, educators, thinking created by black men. So like they were given their shine, but I think that they were also I mean, they were also, it was harder. It was obviously harder for them. Um, I think that the fact that Lillian Fox wrote, when she wrote, um, ended up writing for uh, the Indian... The, the Freeman? The Indiana it, Freeman? No, not the Freeman, the, the white paper. Oh, okay. The Indianapolis News later. Yeah, okay. That she wrote for so long without a byline at all um, for that paper. Okay, now that Be must have been an interesting experience. So a black woman right. not writing for another black paper, but for a white paper. So did, yeah, yeah. So did she suffer kind of any, I mean, one, I would imagine the public probably had feelings about female journalists anyway. Anyway, and then the a fact woman, that she But a woman black. of color. Did she, I mean, what kind of pushback or... Um, I mean, did, did, were there any kind of issues that she had to kind of deal with professionally? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, you know, so yeah, when she when she started working at, at the Indian, Indianapolis News, she had to, I mean, she, I, she was writing without a byline. Um, and the, but the black press kind of made sure that, uh, their readership at least knew, um, what her, uh, you know, which, which articles were hers. Um, you know, I think that these, and she had to fight for more space for her articles. So she had to do you know, the, these, the kind of back and forth, the push and pull in the editorial rooms were absolutely something that she and all of these women had to deal with. Um, there's another uh, um, journalist uh, uh, who I was not able to write about in this article, but um, Pauline Hopkins, whom I don't know if you guys are familiar with her, no, uh, no, I'm not. She, okay, so she was an editor um, at a magazine called the Colored American Magazine in in 1900. It's based out of DC, and she was like she was the magazine's sole woman editor, um, and she was a force. I mean, she was she was prolific. She wrote a ton. She wrote. A, a, a whole series specifically devoted to black women and their achievements. Um, and then a couple of years into her um, role as editor, she was pushed out by um, management at the, news, at the magazine that was more kind of favorable to Booker T. Washington more conservative views and didn't like that she was talking about the things that she was talking about. So they got rid of her. Wow. So um, kind of telling her that she wasn't minding her place. Yeah. She was not in her place. She was, and they called her temperamental. They said that she was well, difficult. Oh, these are you know, these they are things today. that they use today about, about exactly, us anyway. Exactly. You know, the, these are the things we can't, we we can't respond a certain way. It's it's so funny, and it's not just in business; it's in regular life. Like with even with a mate, if you respond to your mate a certain way, then you're being confrontational. Or and I'm like, this is why Donya is single because <laughs> you if you can't take me for who I am and understand that I'm gonna have my moments just like you're going to have yours, you should be able to accept them just like you want me to accept yours. Mm -hmm. If those things can't yeah. be done, then there's a problem. But, because I've been asked... You know, but that's... I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, but that's like... I was going to say, does that sound familiar? Because that's absolutely something that, that we still deal with today. But also, like, Ida B. Wells was had a reputation and I'm air quoting here a reputation for being difficult difficult yes she yeah. did mm -hmm. I love her um, <laughs> but you know I've had people, <laughs> I've had people feel comfortable enough to ask me a question like you know what Brian why do why do black women speak so loud I'm like well first of all they don't speak any louder than anyone else does but if they do speak louder you feel as though they speak louder it's because culturally they come from a culture where they've never been heard okay and if you don't get heard you you, you, you gonna talk you gonna you're speak gonna, up gonna a little bit more up. just just because <laughs> right yeah because we had to if we wanted to be heard in a room that means you need to speak a little bit louder right and then the <laughs> other thing is that that bothers me is that they came to you instead of going to another black woman and well, asking that question they wouldn't put themselves up for that no no way be scared <laughs> don't be don't be scared if you want if you feel free enough to ask a black man that question then why don't you come and just straight to it's the horse's enough. mouth, just come straight mm -hmm. to me and ask me, why are you this way? Right. Now, don't be mad at my response, <laughs> but, you know, understand the response is coming. Oh, no. Well, if you're going to ask a question, you've got to be prepared. You've got to be prepared. you got to be prepared. <laughs> so, Mike, can you, um, one of the things that I loved about Miss, Miss 
Miss Lillian Fox was that during she one of the things that she did was she spoke up about the Civil Rights Act of 1875 and it being repealed. She had mm-hmm. no cut cards Mm-mm. in what she had to say. And I'm last week we did a show about um, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Lewis who was a badass in her own way. Miss Fox follows suit. I mean, without mm-hmm. any any stretch of the word, you she know, does. she 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 follows suit. So basically, she she wrote when she was talking about the civil rights. Like I'm gonna do this quote. What she wrote, she said, "You pity England with her lords and commons." Russia with czars and subject, and yet practically acknowledge that you have a people among you of American birth, whom you considered by God created for your servants, your inferiors by nature rather than by condition. Now I'm gonna tell you something. When I read that, I was like, "Okay, sis," and I started snapping. <laughs> <laughs> I started snapping my fingers and everything because she went straight in on them with no cut cards. This is right, not long after. Um, for what we talking like forty years after after slavery's over, and, mm-hmm. and and she had no she there was nothing holding her back from that. How right. what was what was the response to her writing this? Did did you get anything about that? You know, I did. I I did not. I mean, I it was hard because you know we we're also thinking about like uh, like going deep into these archives that are a lot of the well cast. So I didn't see what the response was to that article, but clearly um, she kept writing and she didn't change and, and, and she kept writing like this. She didn't change her style. So, and, and at the end of her life, as we see, she's basically, I mean, she's like, revered people love her and so i think at least within the black community in indiana and indianapolis she was like a a community jewel i can believe that um Mm -hmm. yeah she she was she was amazing Because you can't always sugarcoat stuff. Sometimes you just have to say it the way it is. And that's that. Yeah. That's my mantra. That's my mantra. <laughs> yes. I'm with it. She's so so clear about just pointing out the hypocrisy. Like, she, without sugarcoating anything, um, she was really... I love her. Well, <laughs> I just wanted to share my frustration because... What I really wanted to do, when I, when I got the, the idea for the show, I tried to do my research and I tried to find modern books. And by modern, I mean pretty much anything written after 1960s about female journal- journalists in general and black female journalists specifically. And I could hardly find anything. I actually found more books on that subject printed in 1880, 1890, 1900, mm-hmm. Than after 1960. So, I mean, these really are, first of all, women, women journalists, period, are just forgotten or just overlooked previous to, prior to the modern age. But, again, black female ju- journalists, were you would think that they had never existed. And um, mm-hmm. just to get your thoughts on, on why that is. Why, why black women are not... Why there's really just no no profile of them whatsoever? Um, because I think that black women, period, are the most kind of invisibilized, made invisibilized people. People are, you know, like you know, we are the least kind of taken into account uh, when it comes to history, when it comes to literature, when it comes to all of these things, and yet we are the major contributors. And, you know, I think that you just see how those forces of both 
racism and sexism are in play. Yet um, there's no hesitation with, to take culture or fashion or music that black women have created. How about I mean, that? How many, how many Beyonce wannabes? How many? Of many different races. <laughs> how many? Are out there? How many? Right. How many? Even right. though letting my daughter, thinking, putting, taking my daughter into perspective, Beyonce isn't a good person to use because she uses everybody else as far as she's concerned. Okay, but but <laughs> nevertheless, I do get it. I mean, I, I do get exactly what you're saying. But yeah, I mean, everything about specific I, I i was drawn to miss fox i mean everybody in here we're going to give you the names of all of the ladies that you wrote about that that's the, that's actually my next question um but miss fox was just gee maybe i'm drawn to her because you i'm just outspoken and she was just <laughs> extremely outspoken she held she did not i think that if she bit her tongue she might put a hole in it so instead mm, of putting a mm. hole in her tongue, she let it out. And that's me. So I think I, I took to Miss Fox very much so. Whereas I took to Victoria Matthews because, mm. again, we're talking about her, you know, her mother left her kids to, you know, mm -hmm. to go north. Right. Then at the end of the Civil War, went back to Georgia, couldn't find all yep. of her children, which is the saddest part of the whole story. But right. she did get Victoria, and I think it was three or four of her siblings. Yeah. And then took, yeah. took them all north. And it's just a powerful story of overcoming slavery. Everything. Working and sacrificing so your children can have a better life than what you had. And Victoria just took the reins and just ran with but it. But we're such powerful people. Like, I love yeah. us. Yeah. I love us. I do. I, <laughs> I do. It's yeah, 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 it's amazing. So tell us more. Who are the other? Um, give us the names of the other women that you you wrote about in this article, so that everybody knows. Because this is this is about teaching. So, mm -hmm. or I would say, because um, there's quite a few of them, and so there is the link um, that's been posted on Genealogy Adventures to the two articles. Okay. Um, who? I mean. All of the women are like standouts, but I mean, who, I mean, whose story really inspired you or, or really moved you? Uh, I mean, they, they all did. I think that was, and there were obviously, you know, and I say this in the introduction that these women represent just a sample of, of the larger kind of group of, of black women journalists who were writing during this time. But I think that I I chose this particular group because they all because I I felt similarly like you guys were talking about you know how you were drawn to them they did that for me I felt very strongly connected to their writing um, how just kind of their uh, their 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 stories. Um, how outspoken and kind of fierce they were in their own way and and how they went to bat for other black women and uh, you know lifted up other black women in in their writing yes, yes in their did. work yes they did was there any mm -hmm. backlash or um, to them being so forthright to what they were doing and I guess for basically not having any apology for doing what they were doing. None. Um, yeah, no, I mean, of course there was backlash. You know, uh, Victoria Earl Matthews talks about how much, just how much harder it was, how it was infinitely harder to be a, a black woman journalist pursuing a career in the field um, than anyone else. You know, she was, she was extremely outspoken and, and that got her into trouble even with other um, <laughs> black women. She kind of notoriously butted heads with Ida B. Wells a little bit, actually, who which, you know, surprise, surprise, the other, you know, you're both strong-willed and you have your opinions. Um, and, 
so she kind of, you know, got got into it with that. Um, Mary Brit, or Mary Ellen Britton, who um, was a Kentucky journalist and then eventually transitioned into becoming a doctor and was the the first black woman physician in Kentucky in 1902. Mm, that could not have been easy. Not for Kentucky. That could not have been easy. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. But she talks about how, you know, early in her career, she was writing a lot of articles, obviously kind of agitating against uh, racial discrimination and kept being, getting, you know, a lot of pushback from folks saying that she was too outspoken. And I think a lot of the times, too, when these women were outspoken, they were called or characterized as manly. Um, so it was a real, like, deep offense to their womanhood, too. And so it was a really kind of deep cut. But also I think they understood how... Um, Unfair. I was about to say a bad word. <laughs> That's okay. But just how like messed up that that is, um, and saw. And I think a lot of them, and it certainly did for Mary Britton, that forced her deeper into specifically women's rights um, activism because she saw the kind of hypocrisy and like the crazy double standards that existed for men versus women. And that's kind of propelled them on. Um, yeah. I don't so, know if I answered your question. No, you did. You um, did. You I've did. got a follow-up to that. Do you think that for women, for the journalists like Mary Britton, it was a case that she and a few others wanted to go 90 miles an hour while some of the other sisterhoods was going, mm, we need to go 35 miles an hour. Is, is it that or yeah. was, it, was it deeper than that? I don't know. No, no, I, yeah. I don't know if it was, I mean, I'm sure that that was true on, you know, for some, on some level. Um, just like a... people have, have different kind of approaches and ways of, 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 pursuing something now that existed then. And then mm -hmm. you think about on top of that, the times, this is the Victorian era that, so everything is, the gender roles are very deeply prescribed and women are still supposed to be kind of the, the, the heads of their household, but behind their, their husbands. And so there's a lot of kind of navigating that while also, you know, for some who were really like, um, you know, there were some women who were kind of taking a yes and approach and saying like, okay, well maybe we'll add to pay for some more, equality within gender, but we're not going to go too far. But then there were others mm -hmm. who were like, no, equality means equality. And we want that everywhere without equivocation, without qualifying. And so in that way, there was maybe some like 90 versus 30. Um, but there's like there 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 are a lot of different cultural factors kind of mixing mixing together um, during this time. And the other thing that I really love is this doesn't seem to be a specific part of America. We're talking about black women, whether they were in New England, the South. It didn't matter. The Midwest. Right. The, it didn't matter. It didn't mm -hmm. matter. The thing that that. Um, each one of these women that you have listed that you talk about on this article are just like great. They, they all had some type of quote that touches on things that are happening today. So like, for mm. example, Lucy Smith, when she made the comment, um, 
when she said, give the girl the same freedom in exercising as the boy, she argued, the same liberty of wearing loose clothes, the same mental food, and she will accomplish the same work. These are things that we're fighting still today. Still today. And then I'm looking at, then we, then we go and we look at um, Dr. Mary Ellen Britton. She was talking about women's suffrage. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Right now, at this moment, you know, we all are celebrating the 100 years of women being able to vote. So, Miss Britton was a part of that. She was a part mm-hmm. of the women's suffrage movement. But Miss Britton wasn't able to vote. How, how can you, can you imagine her feeling on this whole thing? Because Miss Britton wasn't able to vote until the 60s. Yeah. So she missed her mm-hmm. chance because she died in 25. So she, she fought for this right. And didn't see it. And didn't see it. These yeah. are, the, you know, these are the things that, that I'm, I think why. None of these women did. Huh? None of these women really did. Right. None of them did. And, and a lot of people don't realize this. So when you see these commercials, like Ancestry has this commercial where they're talking about the women's suffrage right now, trying to pull people in to do their research and so on and so forth. And they show black and white women and fighting this, this, that, and the third. But what they don't tell is that the black women did not get that opportunity to vote after these women won that chance to vote. That needs to be known. That needs to be told. And that's why I'm telling it. <laughs> I didn't know that until you, until Donya yeah. told me that. I we just assumed we... that all women, you know, provided you met the criteria that if you were a woman, you could vote. Yeah. We didn't mm-hmm. have that chance. Black people still no. didn't have that chance. So it's crazy that she actually talked about women's suffrage, talked about the right to vote, and then didn't get it. Like, these yeah, are some well, amazing women. Yeah, and they... Yeah. They didn't get it after, you know, when, when it was passed, when the 19th Amendment was passed in 1920, but they were, they were also didn't, they were cut out of the, the movement to get there too, obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, Lucy Wilmot Smith was talking about women's suffrage 30 years before they got (laughs) the right to vote. Uh, ostensibly, um, in 1920, she was writing about this. So you know, these women, even even though they were pushed to the margins for so long, for decades, before, during, and after, they were still there. They were still fighting, and you know, trying to be recognized. So my takeaway quote from this, and I'm sure Don, you will cheer me from the back. If today, if you are a black female living in America and you have the legal right to vote and you are of the age to vote, these women paved the way for you to do it. Yes, you they are, did. You are, their wild, you are their wildest dreams. And they, fought, they paid this forward for you. They fought for you to be able to do this. Yes, they did. And I think that's what's missing. And, and that's why when people talk about, oh, why should I go and vote? This is why. I mean, mm-hmm. Britain, she said, she said, um, she was labeled a strong-minded, this is what's written in the article, she was labeled a strong-minded woman for her opinions, and she said, not knowing the import, I argued against the term, but she continued, right. this was no longer so. I now throw away the old ignorant prejudices, which I am ashamed to have ever held, and stand here this evening fearlessly defending women's suffrage. She did it with no fear, y'all, and she still ain't get the chance to do it. You know, these are the things that you, but you do. You as a female can do it. As of 18 years old, you can now vote because of them. And I mean all women. These women that stood in this, in this, in this way for you to get that opportunity to vote. Now, yes, black women were to the back. But they acknowledged the fact that they were to the back and they wouldn't have been able to get to where they were without them. Even though they didn't allow them to vote, they know that they wouldn't have been able to get to where they were without them. Because we yeah. were strong. And y'all got to understand mm-hmm. the fear that it had, that, that it incorporated for people because 
again, we are not too far removed from slavery. These are people that as far as the old enslavers were concerned, did not, could not read, could not write, did not have an education, but yet speaking the way I just read. Mm -hmm. How is that possible? You know, that's a lot to take in. That's a lot to take in in that short time period. So it was scary. It was scary for them. It was um, scary for us. Everything was, it was a fear. But we just fought through that fear because we were already fighting fear anyway. That's, that's mm -hmm. just how I look at it. I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I love researching. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, can I also just say, just to circle back to something we were talking about earlier about how, Brian, you were saying that there, there were not a lot of um, books uh, about these black women journalists, modern books. Um, but the, and I write about this in the article too, the research and the work um, that does exist, more often than not, they are written by other black women. So we, like over, over the years, we have been the ones to make sure that our, these women's legacies have endured. And any, any evidence that we have now that these women existed is more, is, is, is because of the work of other black women, historians, scholars, academics, to keep them alive. Yes. Um, and and really I hope on your, your website too, when you're linking to, at the end of the article, I have a few of the, of the, the historians that really helped kind of inform my, like my foundation research. Um, so please like give a shout out to them as well. <laughs> You're talking about the I-Beam Center for the Future of Journalism? No, I'm talking about Gloria Wade Gale. Oh, um, okay. Evelyn, Evelyn Brooks Higginbottom. Yeah, Darlene Clark-Hein. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Again, just to give you an example, I actually went into a Barnes & Noble bookstore, and this was a big one. And I thought, well, let me try the black history section first. I was trying to think where a book about black female journalists would be. So I went to the black history section, nothing. Um, just nothing whatsoever. Then I thought, well, let me go to the American history section and see what they have. So there wasn't really a lot about female journalists Anyway, anyway, like there were books written by female journalists who, you know, alive today about female journalists of the past, mm -hmm. but nothing, absolutely nothing about black, black journalists. So what are your next moves? What are you about? What, what are the next things that you're going to be doing? Um, Maya. Uh, yeah, well, um, you know, continuing to just kind of do my work, um, maintaining the 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 Instagram site. Um, I'm also just working on uh, other kind of writing projects uh, involving the women um, that I don't that are kind of still on, ongoing. But just continuing to write and. Uh, uh, hopefully kind of partner my, 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 I think the, a big dream with this project is figuring out how to get these histories in spaces where we like on, on school curriculum. I knew on she was going to say with, that. Yeah. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> That's like the biggest dream of mine in the world. Like I want so badly to start really just getting our information on school curriculums because it needs to be there. It makes, it makes a, such a difference. KRS-One made a comment in one of his songs, in his song, You Must Learn. And basically it says when ignorant, I'm I'm a, I'm a stop because I want to say this correctly. So I'm gonna look this comment up, and I'm gonna look this statement up. But it is the most powerful lyric that I have ever heard in any song, 
in my life. And it makes mm. it makes so much sense that it's it's ridiculous, but it's the best thing in the world. So basically, he says, he said, let me demonstrate the force of knowledge. Knowledge reigns supreme. The ignorant is ripped to smithereens. What do you mean when you say I'm rebellious? That's not it. Hold on. I want to make sure I get the whole the, the right one. It is, it says, here it is. He said, I believe that if you're teaching history filled with straight up facts, no mystery, teach the student what needs to be taught because black and white kids both take shorts. When one doesn't know about the other one's culture, Ignorance swoops down like a vulture. How you how you how you miss that? You know, this that's such a big deal to me. And because if they don't know, then that's why they're coming back and saying, I'm better than you. That's where they're that's why they're coming back and feeling like they're better. Because they don't know. They don't realize that we actually worked hand in hand. We worked side by side to make America what it is. They don't have that information. So it's not their fault. To, to a certain degree, it's not their fault. So to have this kind of information into school curriculum, it would bring such a difference, such a type of respect to each other. And not even just for, for people of color, for girls, period. Yeah. <laughs> God, for everybody. For everybody. Yeah. It, it's, it's just Absolutely. amazing. So I, I definitely, I, I see your vision and I understand your dream. I do. <laughs> I do. Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, thank- yeah. I mean, oh no, sorry. sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> it's real. Sorry, everyone. No. Uh, it's slightly um, slightly challenging because we can't we can't actually see you on screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But I'm sorry. Do do continue? No, I mean, I I think that that is so right, and I think especially with you know, this kind of history, people, people, people think that, you know, civil, civil rights movement started in the 1950s. And there were some early um, precursors, obviously, with, you know, Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth Mm -hmm. and Frederick Douglass. Um, and W.E.B. Du Bois and Margaret Scarvey and Booker T. Washington. But there, there is, you know, a hundred years of history in between filled with, with activists, fighters, writers, people, you know, these women who were doing that work. Yeah. And so many of them. And it's important for us to know how deep and this history goes, how deep this fight goes, and that it's not pockets of, of activism along a timeline, but it's a steady stream that is filled with especially Black women who were kind of at the, at the forefront, even if they weren't being acknowledged they were there. Um, and we talk about, you know, how it's important for all of us to know this history, but especially black girls. And I think that's true. It's, it's so important for us to know the kind of stock we come from. Yes. Um, so, the badassery. Yes. <laughs> yes. That, yes. That's who we are. And yes. That we've been there. Um, so that's really, that's, why uh, one of the many many reasons why i i want to kind of get this history in in school curriculums just kind of flood the landscape with these stories with these women um so that people know that they were there please please do and in the final 45 (laughs) seconds of the show i hope that basically the audience and anyone who watches the video, I mean, one of the things that Donnie and I really try to do is stress that American history is just, it's beautiful. When you really get into it, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's intricate. It's multi-layered. Everyone contributed. And that's... It's everything 
that people want to get, that yeah. people want right now. But that's what the history curriculums, no matter what school you're in, it's, should it's every It's everything that people want right now, and they don't even know it. Yeah, we don't even know it. Yeah, we I mean we we didn't. We know now. We know now. And we're we constantly you know, and we're constantly learning it. But the thing is is that it's literally everything that people are fighting for today, it's already been fought for and has happened. Mm -hmm. And that's our takeaway. And that's our takeaway. So um Maya, thank you so much for for being on the show and um just for talking to us. And um you we're gonna keep in touch. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We're um, definitely going to so keep this in touch. It's been wonderful. All we, right. We will definitely do our bit to continue getting the word out about your project and what you're doing. For you for you guys at home or wherever you're watching us, thank you so much once again for sharing your Sunday with us. Yes, I'm Donya Williams. I'm Brian Sheffy. This is Genealogy Adventures and we'll see you next week at 4 p.m. <laughs>